0: Hey, everybody, this is Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church Adelaide, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you can have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now, get ready for an inspiring message from our preaching team. Now, tonight's message is on James chapter 4, and it is about humility. And let me tell you, I'm the right guy to preach this sermon. I am maybe the most humble man you've ever met. Thank you. Thank you. Can you already see the difficulty in preaching a sermon on humility? So either I get up and I say I'm an expert on humility, and and that makes you all think I'm arrogant, or I get up and I say I don't know anything about humility, which makes you think, well, why is he up here in the first place? So I really can't win when you're preaching about humility. But what I would say is this. Humility is a journey journey. It is a journey, and it's not about thinking less of yourself, it's just about thinking of yourself less. That's at the heart of humility. Now, ostensibly, Australians love humility. Like, we talk a lot about how, yeah, yeah, we love the fair go, anyone rises too high, you know, tall poppy syndrome, we cut them off, bring them down. That's not about humility, by the way. That's about just destroying people, but that's a whole other sermon. But we claim to be about humility. We're like, yeah, we're about the fair go, we're about sportsmanship, we're about not sandpapering cricket balls, we're about humility and ethics. And like, with the whole, right, sandpaper gate, for those who are not familiar couple of Australian cricketers, no big deal, were found of just roughing up the ball a bit. Could have happened to anybody. just happened they were trying to hide the sandpaper down their jocks. And the cricketing world went ballistic, right? It involved our captain, who is the best player in the world, best player since Bradman, no big deal, but he is. Best player in the world, Stephen Smith, got banned for a year. Dave Warner, banned for a year. Cam Bancroft, young guy, banned for about six months, nine months, I can't remember. And... Um, and The entire world went nuts, the entire cricketing world went nuts. Now, do you know why? It's not just because they were big names, because big names have been caught cheating before, and this was by far the worst punishment ever given. No, the cricketing world went nuts because the Australian Test cricket team are the most arrogant group of dudes ever, and they continually chip away at people, have, take pot shots, talk about, and, and the worst bit is we win all the time. I say worst, I love it personally, but if you're on the opposing side, we win all the time. And so I was on the, I was on the cruise recently with my family, and the, and the first night we were there was the one-day international World Cup final. And I was sitting in a bar um, watching the cricket with a bunch of Kiwis and Poms, because it was New Zealand and England in the final. And we started chatting, and they're like, where are you from? And I was like, oh, I'm Australian. And they're like, ah, so happy you guys aren't in the final. Really happy about what happened to Steve Smith and the rest. I'm like, great, thanks. Why? Because we haven't been humble. People like humility, but it's a difficult trait to get a hold of. It's not the same as humiliation. We've all been humiliated several times. I distinctly remember being that kid in primary school, you know, maybe getting, just, you know, pulling out the pants too quickly at the bathroom, and then immediately looking down, and then soaking myself with water, and just to go, yeah, no, it's hot today, and no one was fooled. That's humiliation. That's different. That's different. You probably didn't need to know that story, did you? <laughs> just rewind that in my head a little bit. Basically, I was the cool kid in school and everything went right. Humility is a very different kettle of fish, though. And it's a very difficult thing to get a hold of. I think most of us would like to believe we're humble. But again, when you get to thinking you're humble, how do you know? Isn't that pride? Pride. It's very difficult. I want to explore this a little bit tonight. Uh, Moses in Scripture is reputed to be the most humble man ever. In Numbers 12, 3, it says this, that Moses was the most humble man on all the earth. This runs into problems where you realize apocryphally, apocryphally that the book of Numbers was written by, guess who? Moses. So again, we have these humility issues. <laughs> the Office, everybody loves The Office. It's a show about pride and humility, right? You got these these main characters, you got Dwight and Michael, and all the time their pride gets them into trouble, and people call them out on stuff, and they get backed into a corner, and they need humility. This is the problem we have. So, what do we do with this? So, humility in biblical times, nowadays we look at it and we go, We want people to be humble. We receive politicians well when they're more humble. We receive sports people well when they're more humble. We receive people we know better when they're more humble. We love to deflate a big ego, but we love to see humble people encouraged. But humility back in Christ's time was not encouraged. In fact, it was quite the opposite. In Christ's day, there was a clear pecking order. And if somebody was above you, you better bow down and obey them. And if someone was below you, they better bow down and obey you. We had an emperor known as Caesar, and he was in charge of everything. He was God and king, and you worshipped him or you were killed. And the pecking order just went down like that. And into this walks Jesus. And Jesus preaches this countercultural message of humility. And not only is it about saying, be humble, behave more humbly, but it's living it out in such a drastic way in that the further his star rose, the further down he served. The further towards the end of his life he got, the more likely he was to get down on his knees and clean somebody's feet. The further it gets to the end of his life, the more we see him on his knees, sweating blood as he prays tears to the Lord, begging, begging for the cross to be taken away from him. Jesus turned the idea of humility upside down. And so it's all very well for us now to say, oh, humility is a great virtue. Jesus probably kicked it off, and he did. And that's, you know, it has always been a great virtue, but it hasn't. It hasn't. You've got to understand that Jesus brought a countercultural revolution of humility, and that when he was lifted up on the cross and crucified, he was regarded as a common criminal, and his followers were thought of less because of the way their leader died. Jesus brought this absolutely countercultural message of humility. Now, we get into James chapter 4. And what does that teach us about humility? Quite a lot. So if you want to turn with me, I'd encourage you, let's jump into James chapter 4 together. This beautiful, intelligent, wise book, this ego-piercing book. Let's see how it lays our soul bare, because this is a chapter about ego, primarily. Let's read the first few verses. Verse 1. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Now, James is not talking about literal wars. He's not talking about going out and fighting. He's talking about a spiritual battle within us because James' fought, James's readers were not the oppressors. They were not the warriors. They were the oppressed. Okay, So he's not talking about physical battles. He's talking about internal. They wage war within you. You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet And cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Strong language from my guy James. You guys would not enjoy it if I called you, you adulterous people. Am I right? Like, it would not be a a positive thing for you to hear. But this is the language James is using. Why is he using this language? Because at the heart of your relationship with Jesus Christ is humility. And it is distressingly, painfully simple. Either you learn it and have a glorious, growing relationship with Jesus, or you don't, and you will struggle and fight in your relationship with Jesus. It is actually that simple. And so what I want to do tonight is just unpack a few things that James brings to us right there about these different ways we approach humility and what we can do about it. So the first way he looks at humility is this. It's an idea known as low self-esteem. Now, you know what having low self-esteem means, right? Low self-esteem is a genuine issue, right? It is a really genuine issue. It's about people who can't see their own worth. People who don't see their own value, people who bring themselves down, people who tragically don't even value their own image, don't believe they're worthy of being loved by God. And I just want to start, before I go to unpack how we need to fight this problem, by saying that if that's you, if this is triggering anything for you, you need to know you are loved, you are valued, you are needed, you are chosen, you are purposed by God, you are not here by accident. You are not a quirk of fate. You are here for a reason. You are here for a reason. So just know that and live out of that. But self-esteem is a genuine issue we need to wrestle with because low self-esteem comes from a place where we do not believe we are worthwhile. We listen to an internal narrative that says, I am not good enough, and we believe it. This is what James says, chapter 4, 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. He's saying you do not have what you want and need from God because you do not ask God for it. Now, why would James be writing to Christians saying you don't have what you need and you don't ask it from God? Because that sounds a bit ridiculous, but we need this but because, because people with low self-esteem don't believe they're worthy enough to ask the question, why, why would God want to help me? Why would God want to bless me? I'm, I'm not good enough for God to bless. I'm not good enough for God to give grace to When people have low self-esteem, they bring themselves down. They don't trust what people say about them unless it's negative. Now, the the, the framework I want to give, you can see it up on the screen behind me here, to looking at these different traits of humility is receiving compliments and receiving criticism. Because this is a really key way to find out exactly where you sit. So for people with low self-esteem, if someone compliments them, they go, No, 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 I'm not, no. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jez, I love, I love the way you're playing keys. Oh, no, 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 I'm, 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 not, no, I'm not good. I made, a, I made a mistake. I hit a B instead of a C. Uh, yep, that, you know, that's okay. I wasn't, I wasn't really asking for your response there. I was just telling you my opinion that you were great. But people with low self-esteem say no, they disagree. But when they receive criticism, they listen a little too closely. Because criticism is not always healthy. Sometimes we receive criticism and we need to just defer it. We need to actually filter it. But people with a low self-esteem will listen to it. They'll agree with it. And then they'll go home and beat themselves up about it. Oh, that's true. I was so stupid. Why can't I get this right? I always get it wrong. Now, some of this, by the way, is from deep-seated parental stuff. It's deep. It's deep. It's stuff that you've been dealing with all your life. It's just a simple phrase, a few words that your parents said to you at one point. Man, our, our role as parents, it's so dicey. But you can put that behind you. Jesus wants to set you free from this stuff. Low self-esteem, though, and this is painful, but it's crushing, it's debilitating, but it's also bad theology. It's also actually sinful, which for people with low self-esteem is not necessarily great to hear because that brings more burdens on them. But you need to hear this. You need to hear this because low self-esteem devalues the cross. It takes what Jesus did and said, that's not enough to lift me up. That's not enough to restore me. That's not enough to raise me. Again, nobody ever says this stuff out loud. Nobody thinks this stuff in such a conscious way. But this is what we do. When we push ourselves down before a God that's trying to lift us up, we're saying, you're not big enough. You're not enough for what you need to do in my life. Amen? We need to believe in a bigger God if we have low self-esteem. We need to lift our image of God up. God is bigger than you think he is. And if that's something you wrestle with, I came here to tell you tonight that God wants to break you of that chain. God wants you to see yourself in a new light. You don't have to be held by the bounds of self-esteem. So that's the first internal wrestle we have. Now the second one is pride. Straight up, Good old-fashioned pride. And in its most obvious form, we all know what it looks like because it's an instinctive, like, distasteful feeling. We see someone who's really arrogant, and people cringe. You, know? you think, oh, my gosh, that's horrible. Again, going back to the office, it's the whole Michael Scott factor. He says something, and you're like, oh, my God, don't say that. Don't say that. And, he, and he's totally clueless about it. No self-awareness. Why is that? Because the internal narrative, he says, is I am more than enough and more than that and a bit more again. This is the internal narrative of the proud. The internal narrative, and then the external opinion, the external expression is arrogance, hubris, kind of like really a bit gross. People are really, really turned off by the idea of proud people. What do we do about that? Well, the purpose of pride, you see, is to lift yourself up. If the purpose of people who have bad self-esteem is to bring themselves down, the purpose of people with pride is they want to lift themselves up. They don't need anyone else's help with that. Although if you compliment them, they will agree very quickly, like alarmingly quickly. If anything, they might get annoyed at you for not having complimented them in a bigger way. Now, the thing about pride, over the top, overt um, images of pride is it's really obvious, right? We We don't really need any hidden stuff to pick this stuff up, but it goes a lot deeper than this. Here's what happens if you receive criticism when you're proud. You usually will interrupt. You don't want to let that full criticism get out there. Then you'll disagree, and then you'll get angry about it. Now, if you're a, an extrovert, that means you will get angry. If it's an introvert, it means you'll get passive-aggressive. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Nervous laughter. Mm. <laughs> proud people do not listen to the wisdom of others. Half the book of Proverbs is about the proud. Now... Pride, for me as a pastor, is the toughest thing to pastor. It's not. It's not the worst sin, right? There is no worse sin apart from blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but that's a whole another thing. There, there's no worse sin, right? Pride is just as bad as everything else. But in terms of how difficult it is to pastor people, if you are proud, it is near impossible. Sexual sin, way easier. Greed, way easier. Gossip, way easier. Why is this? Because proud people don't listen. Proud people are hard-hearted. And if you're hard-hearted, there's a, that's a posture towards God. And it's said again and again in Scripture that you're hard-hearted, which means you simply don't want what God has for you. You've established your own opinion. Why would you need God to tell you anything? It is the hardest thing for me to pastor. Now, you didn't come here for me to tell you what's the hardest part of my job. But nevertheless... I tell you that because if you think you might be one of the proud people here, you, you need to soften your heart. Humility is the response. We'll get to humility. But it's the toughest thing to It. This is what James says. You desire and you don't have. You murder and you cover and do not obtain. What happens when selfish people don't get what they want? Anger, violence, aggression. This is the proud. This is what happens in the hearts. The desires of the proud are about getting their own way. James describes us as murderers and coveters because we don't get what we think we deserve. But Scripture, in all its occasionally brutal beauty, reminds us that without the influence of Jesus, what we deserve is nothing but death. We're not as good as we think we are. So pride And low self-esteem are these two opposite ends of the same spectrum. These internal narratives that either tell us we cannot be loved or we don't need anyone else's approval. And both of them are damaging. But there is a third one. And the third one is so deliciously 2019 social media era, narcissistic. It's called false modesty or false humility. Now, false humility is a lot tougher to spot False humility is often found in little, little facey posts, little Facebook posts where you're just, you're just prodding for likes, you know what I mean? Like, it could be just, you know, I'll, I'll pick on my wife because she did not do this, okay? Please hear me clarifying. This is not what she did. But like, Jen, Jen put up a photo of our kids at Book Week this week, right? Book Week mums beyond notice, this is a thing, yeah. Young adults are like, what are you talking about? Book week mums are a real thing, but that's, again, a whole nother conversation. <laughs> so, Jenny, in all her brilliance, outsources the costumes to her sister, who's just craftier. She's craftier, did a great job, did a great job. Jenny cheered her on, you know talk to her, encourage her as she, as she built the costume. And so she builds this costume for Noah. Noah wanted to go as Noah's Ark because he's a pastor's kid, like maybe the pastor's kid of all pastor's kids. <laughs> I'm going to a public school book week day as Noah's Ark. Incredible. Unbelievable. What a flex. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no religious education here? Watch me. Six years old. <laughs> Noah turns up as Noah's Ark and people are like, oh, wow, that's very impressive. Now, if Jenny was a different kind of person, she would have put it up and put some sort of caption on the bottom like, oh, just something I whipped together for Noah. No, it wasn't. It took hours of love and attention and affection, and of course it did. But the whole, like, let me show you how much work I put in while making a comment indicating how casual it was and how I really wasn't trying at all, that's false humility, right? That's false humility. And it has its roots in narcissism. In fact, there's now a psychological term that they call... Uh, let me get this right, an inferiority complex, an inferiority complex, which is basically a fake complex where we pretend to be inferior so that others will affirm us. And you say it out loud like that, and you're like, wow, that's narcissistic. But we've all done it. We've all lived in that space. I remember there was this kid I went to primary school with. Wow, real primary school memories here tonight. I'll pay you for the counselling bill later. There was a kid I went to primary school with, and I've never forgotten. I know his name, but I won't say it. And I'll never forget, he used to walk around five years old going, nobody likes me, nobody wants to play with me. And we go, yes, we do. Yeah, no, we love you. Come on, let's play with this kid. And so everybody would play with him. He'd be like, no, you don't. And it becomes this thing after a while, even at five years old, you're like, oh, yeah, I see what's going on here. And you start going, you're right. I don't really want to play with you. Like It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. because at some point, the more you go, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm no good, you end up going one of two ways. Either people believe you and you start believing the narrative you're speaking and you go down the self-esteem path of low self-esteem, or you begin, or people big you up so much you're like, they're right, they are right, I am great, and you become proud. The difference is, with self-esteem and pride, these are internal narratives you're listening to, telling you that you're not good enough or you're too good. But the thing with false humility is it's an external narrative, but you're looking for the wrong narrative. You're listening to the voices around you to affirm you, whether it's just that you go to the gym enough, whether it's the person you're with. Whether it's the habits you have, the food you eat, the clothes you wear, the job you have, the money you earn, there is a narrative that we are looking for affirmation and we have to fight it because the culture we're in is like, double tap, I like that, double tap. And you know half the time you don't even like it, you're just like, that's my friend, double tap, keep keep scrolling. And that's the energy we've given to it. But then we're going back on, oh, 50 likes, usually I get 70, 55, gosh, what's going on? going on, and you just keep checking, you know, a little check. I've done it. I'll, I'll just admit it here. I've done it, like, recently, you know, put something up and be like, oh, it's a bit lower than I expected. <laughs> Anyone else? Like, let's be honest. It happens. It happens. The thing about false humility is it seeks to bring yourself down, but in order for other people to bring yourself up. It's fake. You're faking it. And when people compliment you, you disagree, but only so they say it again. <laughs> but when people criticize you, this is what happens. You listen. Externally, you're like, oh, thank you. Yeah, such a good point. But internally, you go one of two ways. You'll either go down the low self-esteem route or the pride route. You'll either, go, you'll either start believing it and go, oh, wow, I'm terrible. And you won't ever filter for it because you rely on the opinions of others. Or you'll go down the other route of, of uh, pride and go, who the hell do they think they are? This is what ends up happening when you go down the narrative of false humility. There is a really prominent place in scripture in Luke chapter 18 where we see it, where this tax collector comes and he's praying in this parable that Jesus says, uh, tells and he says, Lord, I'm thankful that I'm, sorry, not a tax collector, a Pharisee comes. He says, I'm thankful that I'm not like that tax collector. I'm thankful that I tithe. I'm thankful that I'm a giver. I'm thankful that I'm faithful, so good that I'm like this God, thank you for making me this way. It's pretty gross, isn't it? And the tax collector is down and he's beating his chest, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, this man, not the other, went home justified. That is false humility. Now, there's got to be a way, and the, the way is true humility, true humility. True humility is when the opinions of others are heard, but they don't change your view of yourself. And it's not because you're proud, and it's not because you're arrogant, but because the purpose of your life is not to be lifted up by those around you, but to serve and lift up others. Wow. Yes. True humility is about dying to self, and it is the Jesus-shaped way. See, Jesus pioneered this not by just talking about humility, but by living it out. In Philippians chapter 2, which is this beautiful, beautiful um, letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and we did a whole series on it, jump on the podcast, and when I preached on chapter 2, I preached a bit more in detail on humility, and in it, we looked at this hymn, right? Paul says, don't think of yourself too highly, but think of others more highly than yourself. And then he goes and he says this hymn, and he says, have this mind about yourself, That is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he he was God, he was God, he came in the form of a servant, he made himself nothing. And there's this beautiful verse where Paul said, he did not view equality with God as something to be grasped. Even though he was God, he didn't see the need to make himself bigged up. But in fact, he came in the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of man. And he made his way to the cross, And I want to quote this bit verbatim. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We'll come back to that. See, true humility exists to lift others up. It's not about you. It's about laying down your life in service and not in that false humility way where you're laying down your life and waiting for someone to tell you what a great job you're doing serving them. If you're looking for approval from your service, you're looking to the wrong God. But in a genuine way, serving others. When they receive a compliment, you know what they do? They just say, thanks. Thank you. Oh, that's really kind of you because you can accept a compliment if you know you're gifted but you know the gifts come from God the Father. You don't need to reject them. You don't need to play the whole no 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 it wasn't me it was all God. It was really all God. Well, like God didn't sing through you. God didn't make that coffee with your hands, right? Like you did that. Be glad, be thankful for the for the uh, grace extended to you in a compliment. But here's the key. When you criticize a genuinely humble person, this is what happens. They will listen They'll thank you for communicating with them, depending how you communicate with them. And then they'll sift. They'll sift through and go, okay, what is the truth in that? Because in every piece of criticism you ever receive, my friends, there will be something true. Almost inevitably, there will be something true. If somebody says something to you you don't like, don't ask what's wrong with that person. Ask, why don't I like it? Because there'll be something true in it. And as you sift it, there'll be some gold there that you can hold on to. And you can sift out the stuff that doesn't apply. You can sift out the stuff that you go, you know what? sounded like he was having a bad day. Probably could have phrased that better, but that's fine. That's what true humility does. And at the end, it learns. True humility learns. On true humility, we rely on a different opinion, not inside us or around us, but above us. We know the opinion of God and we love him. Because true humility knows we are called to live from a place of godly security. This is what it all comes back down to, security or insecurity. Are we secure in God or are we not? Now, I've started this little practice over the last year or so, which is I'll preach and uh, sometimes people will come up to me and they're like, oh, that was a great message tonight, Mike. And usually, I'd be like, oh, thanks, that's so kind of you, which is, which is fine. But I've started, yeah, and Luke and Christy are laughing because I, I pull this on them from time to time. <laughs> They'll be like, that's such a great message. I'll be like, that's great. How is God speaking to you through it? Because yeah. my desire is not to be affirmed just for the sake of affirmation, which is not why they do it. Like, please keep doing it, though. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> my desire is not to be affirmed. My desire is to grow people. My desire is to see people grow up into Christ. So if you're coming up to me and saying, great message tonight, Mike, just know that I will probably turn around, depending how tired I am, and say, Thanks so much for that. What's God saying to you in this? I'm not saying this to make you uncomfortable. I'm saying it because God is saying something to you. If there's something in you that resonated with the message, whether it's tonight or another night, whether it's me or another preacher, then work out what God is trying to say to you. Don't just let it pass you by. One of the big problems with us as believers is God meets us and we let it pass us by. Don't do that. Don't do that. The Jesus model for our lives is a model of humility. And this is what James gets to at the last part of chapter 4 that we read today. In verse uh, verse 7, he says this, Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Then he says these delightful, encouraging words. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Quite the cheerleader, James was. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why does he say this? Because sin actually matters. There is a weight to sin. And James is trying to say, friends, if you understand the nature of God and the love of God, and you understand the goodness and glory and hugeness of God, then at some point you've got to come face to face with your own sin and your own brokenness, whether that manifests itself in self-esteem issues or pride issues or false humility issues, or one of a million other issues, and you need to come before God in humility and say, "God, I need you. I need what you have." And you might be here tonight, and you go, "Why should I? Why should I? Why should I? Why should I do that? I'm doing all right. I'm a pretty good. Per- I'm a basically good person." That's my favorite catch-all that I hear from people. I'm basically good. I'm pretty good. I'm not perfect, but, but really, in the head, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm basically good. Why should I? Well, it's up to you. But what that question does is, is it messes with your basic understanding of God, Because your basic understanding of God is meant to come to a point where you do one of two things. where well, you, sorry, you have these two conversations. And the first is to go, "Who is my Lord? Who is my God?" Ultimately, there will only be two answers. Either the Lord on high, who came as Jesus Christ, who is present in us now as the Holy Spirit, or you. Because even if it's somebody else, even if you worship at the cult of Apple, you're still making that choice. It's still you. It's still about how it serves you. The difference between serving God is about how it serves others. But the other question you've got to ask is, do I trust God? Do I trust him? The first one, who's actually my God? Who's actually my Lord? The second one, do I trust what God says? And that's actually a really fair question. Here's what James says in verse 10. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now that's the same word that Paul used in that hymn in Philippians that says he has been highly exalted. What does exalt means? It means to lift up. That when we humble ourselves before God, God lifts us up. See, the reason you can trust God is because God's intent, God's desire, is not to press you down and break you and make you feel like nothing. God's desire is for you to understand that in Him you have everything, you have all the grace, all the intimacy all the hope you could wish for, but it requires humility and emptying where you say, I'm at the end of myself. I've poured myself out and I'm tired. My life hasn't gone the way I wanted. My relationships haven't gone the way I wanted. My work hasn't gone the way I wanted. My family's not gone the way I wanted. I'm, I'm at the end of myself. And God says, perfect. I can work with that. Because the problem is when we try and take control of the narrative, friends, when we say, oh, I've got low self-esteem, God, you, you can't, you can't, you couldn't possibly. Or when we've got pride and we say, no, no, you don't want to, you don't want to, I don't need you. Or when we've got false humility and we're hiding behind a mask, God can't reach you. we're pretending to be. God is kind, God is gracious. But if we lower ourselves like Jesus did, he doesn't just say, good, I'll accept that. He lifts us up. We are the resurrection people of God. God brings us new life. He takes the dead and makes them alive. That's what he's doing in you. That's what he's done in me. The question is, what do we do about that? Let me go right to the heart of this passage. It's so beautiful. James chapter 4, verse 6. James writes this. But God gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He extends grace to the humble. And if you're wondering, why does he resist the proud? Because the proud don't want him. The proud are resisting him. And God in his grace goes, I respect your decision, but I'm extending grace to the humble. And if you'll come in humble spirits, it's not just that you are worthy of me. It's that you'll fully find me. God loves you, by the way. He loves you as you are right now. God's not waiting for you to humble yourself to love you. That already happens. But if you're here and you're just, you're a bit dry, or you're hungry for God, you're like, why why am I not in a place with God where I want to be? It's going to have something to do with this. Your self-esteem, your pride sense of false humility, your sense that you're taking your sense of identity from somebody who isn't God. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. For more information and resources, please check out our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Have an amazing day. God bless.